Section 12 of The Normans in Europe by Arthur Henry Johnson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 9. Feudal System and Monasticism, 800 to 1050, Part 1. Leaving William secure in the possession of his ducal domain, we must take a glance at the origin and character of the feudal system. No question connected with the history of early institutions has been the subject of such controversy as that of the origin of this system. In the last century, it was supposed to have been systematically introduced by the Franks on their first conquest of Gaul in the 5th century as a means of governing their newly acquired possessions. Others, while rightly allowing it to be of gradual growth, have unduly pressed the distant analogies to be found in Roman law, and have traced its development more or less exclusively from the forms of tenure to be found under the later empire. These ideas, however, have been abandoned of late, and it is now generally held to be of purely natural, that is, of Frankish growth, a gradual development of Teutonic customs, which at most, as they acquired form, borrowed from the analogies to be found in Roman law. In tracing the origin of the institution, it will be well to consider it under its twofold aspect of a system of land tenure and a system of government. It had been a custom of the kings of the Merovingian house who had ruled the Franks from the 5th to the 8th century to grant estates to their kinsmen and followers in return for which they exacted a pledge of fidelity. Lands so granted were termed beneficia and though perhaps originally held for life, rapidly tended to become hereditary. In time, this custom was extended by the spontaneous act of the free landowners, who, for the sake of protection in those troubled times, surrendered their estates to some great man or church to be held of them as tenants by rent and service. Thus this beneficiary system gradually became universal, and not improbably borrowed somewhat from Roman law where the custom of holding land of another by a perpetual kind of lease was well known under the name of Amphiteusis, while the grants of lands along the frontier to friendly tribes on the term of military service formed another precedent. In this beneficiary system we have some of the elements of feudalism, the real relation, that is, the tie formed through the medium of land tenure, existed between landlord and tenant, and a rent was in many cases paid. But the personal tie of vassalage was wanting. The tenant, while holding land of another, and promising to be faithful to the Lord as a return for protection, was in no sense his man, he paid him no homage. This, the personal tie, was given by the custom of commendation whereby the inferior put himself under the personal care of his lord. With head uncovered, with belt ungirt, his sword removed, he placed his hands, kneeling between those of his lord, promising to become his man or vassal and took the oath of fealty. This vassalage had no relation to land. The tie between man and man was here a purely personal one. 
the vassal still might hold his land independently of his lord. He had simply, by the act of commendation, become the lord's man, had sworn to be faithful to him, and sometimes to pay him military service, the lord on his part engaging to defend his vassal. It had long been the custom of the Germanic kings to collect around them a number of personal followers under the name of comitatus or gesiths, and we shall see this system in England, under its English form of thaneship, become universal. Some have supposed that this happened abroad and have traced the system of commendation from that of the comitatus, of which they consider it a later development. Others assert the independent origin of the two customs. In any case, the reason for the rise of the two systems is to be sought in the same desire of mutual protection and security, and the Teutonic institution of comitatus, at least, became merged in that of the commendation. Here again the relation of the client to the patron in Roman law furnished a model from which perhaps something may have been borrowed. Finally, in the union of the beneficiary tie with that of commendation, the feudal obligation arose. Then, in every case where a beneficium was granted, or handed over by the owner to be received back again, the tie would be completed by an act of homage, and the tenant would now be bound to his lord by tenure and by fealty. Thus society grouped itself round many centres or units, the king granted lands to his great men who paid homage to him. They in turn granted outlands to those below them, sub-infeudation, and all ranks tended to become connected together through the medium of land tenure. Thus far, feudalism was little more than a system of land tenure, and society had not yet affected the machinery of government. For this we must look to the opposite process. Hitherto the movement had been a growth from below, an aggregation of inferiors round numerous superiors or centres. Now the opposite tendency comes in. It had long been the custom of the kings to couple their grants of land with rights of independent judicature over the dwellers on that land, and under the successors of Charles the Great, the official magistracy became hereditary. They acquired large estates with the rights of jurisdiction. The smaller landowners gathered round them for protection and became their vassals. Thus, as the central power lost its hold, these officials gradually established their independence, until from the ministerial officers of the empire, the dukes and counts became the rulers over separate principalities with semi-royal rights of jurisdiction, coinage, and legislation, enjoying the right of waging private war, and bound to the central authority by the feudal tie alone. By the union of these two tendencies, then, the centripetal from below, the centrifugal from above, the feudal system was completed. Each held of another, all were bound to one another by obligation of service, fealty, and defense, and all eventually held of the king, the head of the feudal fabric. Government and justice were organized on the same basis. Each separate lord had his feudal court with jurisdiction over his immediate vassals and the tenants of his domain. 
This jurisdiction varied according to the terms of grant in each particular case. Causes which the lower courts were not competent to judge were sent to the court above, and in theory the ultimate appeal belonged to the royal court. The most important form of trial was that by combat, in which the accuser and accused appealed to God and decided the question by the sword. But women and ecclesiastics were allowed to entrust their cause to a champion. If the combat was to settle a civil suit, the vanquished party forfeited his claim and had to pay a fine. If he fought by proxy, the champion was condemned to lose his hand. In criminal cases, the defendant challenged his accuser or his judges, and if victorious, the punishment due to his offense was visited on them. The Lord exercised the right of levying the feudal dues upon his vassals, claimed the right of private war, enacted petty laws in the feudal court, and in some cases had even the privilege of coining money. Besides the military tenants who were the only proper feudal vassals, there were many others who held improper feuds on varying terms, the most usual being those who paid a fixed sum of money annually, and were exempt from all further service, free socagers. Beneath these free tenants came the villains, a class perhaps originally formed of the conquered population, but recruited in later times by many of the less fortunate who fell into this semi-servile position. These villains were of two kinds, villains regardant and in gross. The former held small plots of land to which they were bound. They could not leave the land, nor could they be driven from it, but they might be transferred by their lord with the land, and had to pay him servile services by tilling the land of his domain. The villains in gross were little better than personal slaves incapable of property, and destitute of redress against their lord except for the most atrocious injuries. To the feudal system must also be traced the growth of hereditary offices. It had long been the custom for the great men to surround themselves with a multitude of dependents, who filled offices which now would be considered menial, but then were looked upon as honorable. In feudal times these offices became hereditary, and thus we find the titles of steward, seneschal, marshal, chamberlain, and butler held as inheritable offices by great families under the greater feudal lords. The essential principle of feudalism was that of mutual support and fidelity. The lord promised to protect and do justice to his vassal, the vassal to be faithful and do service to his lord. If the lord omitted to fulfill his part of the contract, the vassal might abandon his allegiance. If the vassal neglected his duties, his land would forfeit to the lord. The duties of the vassal were briefly these. He had to do suit and service to his lord's court. Of this court he was one of the judges, and if himself accused, would enjoy the right of trial by his peers. He had to serve his lord for forty days when required, and go into captivity for him as hostage when taken prisoner. Further, he was subject to the following incidents. On succeeding to his estate, he had to pay a fine under the name of relief. He had to contribute toward the dower of his lord's eldest daughter, and toward the expenses incurred in knighting his eldest son, 
and to the ransom for his lord if taken captive. The lord had in some cases the right to wardship of the estate of his tenants during the minority of the heir, and could marry his ward to his own nominee or exact a fine on refusal. Closely connected with feudalism, the institution of knighthood or chivalry grew up. This is probably to be traced to the primitive Teutonic custom of investing the youth arrived at man's estate with his arms in the full assembly of the tribe. In feudal times, the ceremony would be performed in the castle of the Lord and would be conferred not only on his own sons, but upon the sons of his vassals, whereby another bond was formed between the Lord and his dependents. Any knight, however, might in theory confer the dignity. By the church, the ceremony was invested with a semi-religious character, especially during the crusading period. The would-be knight, after bathing in a bath, as if to wash away his sins, was robed in a symbolical garb and left within the church to pass the night in prayer and meditation. Next morning, after confession and reception of the Eucharist, he went to his initiation. His arms and spurs were buckled on him by knights or ladies, and kneeling before his lord, he received the accolade or three blows across the shoulders with the flat of the sword. Then, swearing to serve God faithfully and fight for his faith, to maintain the right of the weak, especially of women, to be honest in all his dealings and to be true and loyal to his lord, he rose a knight. The systematic establishment of this form of society and government seems to have been confined to the limits of the empire of Charles the Great, that is, to Germany, France, Aragon, and Italy. In the last, owing to her after-history, it was not of lasting influence except in the Norman kingdom of Sicily, and though it was subsequently transferred to England by the Normans once it spread to Scotland, it there appeared, as we shall see, in a modified and exceptional form. Within these limits, the influence of the feudal idea was supreme. Not only did it affect the tenure of land and the framework of justice and government, it threw its all-embracing arms over the church itself. The bishops held the lands of their sees by feudal tenure and paid homage for them, and hence, as we shall see, arose the quarrel over investitures. The papacy under Gregory VII adopted the same phraseology and shape, became a spiritual monarchy after the feudal type, and aspired to be the feudal superior of Western Europe, to whose suzerainty the kings and the emperor himself should be subject. Its effect upon society must now be noticed. Rising as it did out of the circumstances and wants of the times, it had a meaning and it did something toward the development of the individual and of society. The attempt at centralization introduced by Charles the Great had been premature, and in the disorganized state of society which followed, fell to ruin. Here feudalism came in and by its decentralizing influence helped to develop local institutions and self-government. At the same time, the tie which in theory existed between all members of the system, weak though it was, yet kept France in some sort together, and prevented the rise of independent kingdoms as was the case in the eastern empires. In the right of the vassal to defy the lord, 
lay the germ of the future right of resistance to arbitrary rule, and since in theory no suzerain could exact other than the customary dues, or pass laws without his vassal's consent, who in turn was held to represent his sub-vassals, the idea of popular assent to taxation and legislation was maintained. To it again we owe the growth of territorial as contrasted with personal power. Nobility, which had hitherto been purely a personal honor, became territorial. The dukes, counts, and barons assumed titles from their castles or domains. They became the lords of the land over which they ruled, and by virtue of their position as owners of the land, enjoyed rights of jurisdiction over their vassals. The kings followed suit. Once the personal kings over their tribes, they now became the overlords of all the land occupied by their tribes and the kings of the territory by that right. Hence, the final change to territorial from personal sovereignty. Moreover, the hereditary principle thereby perfected was necessary to real advance, since without it, progress was dependent upon single lives and continuity difficult to maintain. Meanwhile, within certain limits, something was done toward the development of individual character. This will be best appreciated if we recall the character of feudal life. Imagine a castle, perched on some rock or cliff, detached from the mountains near, with a river flowing at its feet. The rock is difficult of access, and nature has been assisted by the work of man. Strong walls surround the castle. The gates are guarded by heavy doors, and every approach commanded by narrow mullioned windows from which arrows and other missiles may be shot. Enter the gates, and you find yourself in a small courtyard laid down with turf. Within, the castle is dark and weird, lit by straggling sunbeams which pierce the narrow windows. The dungeon and the cellars are beneath, the hall and sleeping rooms above. The hall alone looks cheerful. Here at least there is some space, some light. A huge fire crackles on the hearth, and here the Lord and his family pass the days. Here the jongleur or bard sings his lays, and here the feudal feasts are held. The Lord may go forth to the war or the chase, but his family for the most part stay at home, and in the long winter evenings, or in times of danger, when the castle is tightly closed, he and his family are necessarily thrown together. End of section 12